0: Thanks so much again, and I invite you to turn to page 8 in your bulletin, and if you have your Bibles, it's John chapter 5, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda And while I am going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You thank may be seated. Father, I do thank you and praise you for your word written in John 5. Look down in mercy upon us, Father, and cause us to see Jesus for who he truly is. Deliver us from the power of sin. Deliver us from the power of darkness. Deliver us, O oh God. Father, we want to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I know one time I preached this sermon and almost got in trouble in another location because according to the the person who accused me, I had accused, I was saying that the Jews killed Jesus. John wrote it, and when John is talking of the Jews, he is speaking not of the ethnic Jews, but the political Jews. So if there's anyone in here who may be Jewish, I am not saying the Jews killed Jesus. I am saying what John said. The people who were in authority over the Jews, they persecuted Jesus. Amen? So in our story, Jesus enters a place where the climate was one of extreme crisis. Our sisters over here work in a place of extreme crisis. They're dealing with people An extreme crisis every day. And we're talking about the sanctity of life today. The people in our text were in desperate need of help and were unable to help themselves. Throughout John's gospel, John is asking the question, he's answering the question, who is Jesus? And this story reveals Jesus as, the one, as that one sorry, who has come from the Father in order to save the lost, to strengthen the weak, and to encourage those who are both physically and spiritually uh, lame and powerless, so that together in Christ we may walk in the newness of his abundant life. 33 years ago, I was paralyzed from waist down, and I learned how to walk. It took me seven months to learn how to walk again. It was only Jesus. He did it for me. That's why I love this woman. She took care of me. I couldn't do anything for myself. And this lady took care of me. People used to say, You still with him? (laughs) Right in my presence. I was weak and powerless. I couldn't even fight back. Why don't you just wipe the tears and bear it? But there are three things I want us to consider as we open up this text, and I want to be faithful to the text. In verses 1 through 9, I ask you the question this morning. Are you waiting at the pool? I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord, but I ask you in the name of Jesus this morning, Are you waiting at the pool? John tells us that Jesus met this man who was infirmed for over 38 years. And he asks him, and Jesus knew the man was sick. In chapter 2, in verse 24, John says, Jesus knew everything about us. He didn't need anybody to tell us anything about anybody because he knew it was in man. And Jesus knew this man's condition. And so he asked him, do you want to be healed? I mean, if I was, if I was, if I was there, I, I may have asked Jesus, "Is the Pope Catholic?" <laughs> Come on, Jesus. I mean, what do you think the brother's been waiting there for all these years? But this is one of those moments in Scripture where we hit pause and we recognize that the all-knowing Jesus is the one who is asking the question, he's up to something. He's up to something much deeper than what appears to be obvious to the rest of us. Jesus' question makes this lame man face the truth about himself, possibly for the first time in his life. After all, Jesus has a way of getting, um, he, he has a way of getting to the truth about us. He has this way of of just not only getting at the truth, he has this way of digging down deep to the source of what it is you and I really need. He asked a woman at the well early on, hey, um, could I get some water from you? You know, he asked the apostles, who do men say that I am? Not that he needed to know anything. And he asked us from time to time, what are you doing? Where are you, Adam? There's a great multitude of people in crisis, as I said earlier. They're blind. John describes them as blind, lame, and paralyzed. They were a huddle mass just waiting, waiting for the stirring of the pool so that someone could be the first one in and be healed. What a life of hopelessness. But this was this man's normal way of life. No doubt, he had gotten over his frustrations of life and weakness, especially as he had so much company around him, people who were just like him. He had found a new community of helpless people. He was comfortable. What about you, my friends? Have you settled into your pool of Bethesda, into the rut of a particular lifestyle, knowing that you can achieve more, knowing that you uh, that 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 you can do far more than what you've accepted as normal? How often do you make excuses for your actions and your sin patterns and dismiss it with statements such as, "Well, it's the way that I am. I can't change." But Jesus in John, the Jesus of the Bible, will cause you to face the truth about yourself. And he will target your deepest longings. As he did with the man at the pool, Jesus wants to lead you to discover the truth about who he is and why he has come. My brother Paul says in Romans 5 and 6 that Jesus really knows our condition. It says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And my friends, Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what John is telling us in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And this word came down to us. Not to to, uh, 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 amaze us with his signs, but he came down to us to save us from our sins and to deliver us from the power of sin, from the power of darkness, and from the power of death itself. 38 years of debilitating illness Is more than enough time to break anyone's spirit and cause them to live in weakness and helplessness. This man asked Jesus when Jesus answered him. He answered Jesus when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. You could hear the resignation in his voice. He'd given up. He, just barely, he was just barely surviving. Troubles and trials tend to do that to us. Setback and sickness would rob the strongest among us and humble us to the point where we might find ourselves just hanging on for dear life. Vulnerable, as our sister mentioned earlier. Vulnerable to the voices of the enemy. Mark Johnston comments on this verse. He says, this man's physical condition becomes a painfully graphic picture of the spiritual condition of every fallen human being. And what's worse about his situation is that he had come to the conclusion that he knew exactly what he needed in order to be made well. That's our problem, friends. We think we know what we need. And that's the great delusion. My friend Paul's us, Paul tells us that we are slaves to sin. I love Ephesians 2 verse 1. He says, "In you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you also once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience we are in a worse situation than this man in the Bible because we are in a desperate need of someone to rescue us from a condition that only God can help us. A friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, said, you know, he's talking to a family about some stuff and he said, let us pray. And the lady asked, has it come to that? <laughs> yes, my friends, it has come to that. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by a dependence upon God that only God can provide in and through the work of Jesus Christ, his son, and the presence of his Holy Spirit. It has come to that. You cannot make it without him. You do not have enough intelligence, nor wisdom, nor experience to understand what tomorrow, what you have to face tomorrow, or even today. You and I, we need Jesus. You know, Apart from Christ, we are no different from this man in our text. Like him, we have to realize that we are powerless and and helpless, and, and we cannot change those things about us that rob us of our real purpose in life, and that is to glorify God, and what? To enjoy him forever. The good news today is that Jesus is not waiting for us to solve our situation. Just as he did in our story, Jesus enters our pool of Bethesda. He enters our places of resignation and he reveals to us our miserable condition. That's the bad news. But the good news is he looks upon us with great pity and from a heart filled with love for us, he says to us as he did to that man many years ago, rise up. And immediately we discover that Jesus' words have power. Until you and I come to that place where we realize our condition, we will never move from our pools of Bethesda. Only Jesus can deliver us out from that desperate place of doom and despair. I urge you to cast your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is really a gift. Trust in him. And I will assure you, my friends, that he will grant you the power to leave your pool and he'll grant you the power to live for him and he'll grant you the power to walk in the newness of life. Will you trust him today? The second point of this text is a problem with religion and we see it in verse 10 through 15 of this text. The man is healed and folks get upset about it. And what I want us to notice is that Christianity is not a religion. I was so, I was so, I was so pleased to be in a Sunday school class earlier where we learned about covenants and how uh, we were reminded by one of those Dutch theologians, Berkhoff, that even though the Lord uses covenants and even though covenant was used in his, historically by man, God didn't take something man-made. To to do something for us. God was explaining his sovereign work in and through man. And so Christianity is not a a new religion. Christianity is, is not a religion. It's a fulfillment of all that God has promised to us. Here's why. Religion is basically man's attempt to appease some angry deity. That's all religion is. It's quid pro quo. I'll do, he must do. And religion tells man that he, that he must do something. Christianity, on the other hand, is based purely on what the Lord has done for us in and through the redemptive work of Christ Jesus alone. That's all Christianity is. It's a good God doing great things through Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that the only thing that you and I can do and must do is repent and believe in Jesus. And that's, that's plain and simple. The only thing we bring to the table is our attitude. We are either stiff-necked or we are bowed down flat on our faces. In our story, Jesus commands this man to pick up his bed and walk away from the pool. What an amazing event. But John puts this little ominous sentence there. It was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Jesus, you shouldn't be doing things like this on the Sabbath. Any other day, why couldn't you have done it those other times? It was the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders' reaction to this watershed moment reveals the nature of religion and how it has nothing in common with true Christianity. The way these religious men responded reveals several diabolical flaws about religion. They're diabolical. First of all, religion made these men blind to the things of God. So there are some blind people at the pool, and there's some blind leading the blind. They were blind to the things of God. They showed more concern for the Sabbath than about this great work which everyone present had just witnessed. Why were they so preoccupied with keeping the Sabbath? Well, here's what I learned from history. The Shekinah glory left the temple and the prophet Ezekiel told them that God God had left the building. Jeremiah had also warned them in chapter 17 that if they, if they didn't do right, God would, if they didn't handle the Sabbath properly, I don't have time to, to go into it, but it's Jeremiah 17, verse 20 to 27. So Jeremiah prophesied that if you didn't behave properly on the Sabbath, God would judge you seriously. So they knew that the glory had left, and they, they concluded that our fathers disobeyed God and God was right to leave them in such a condition. And so in between the Old and New Testaments, a bunch of great thinkers got together and they concluded that, you know something, we were wrong. So we, we, we're in exile because we didn't keep the commandments, especially the law of the Sabbath. But if we develop, if we are faithful to the Sabbath, God will be obligated to honor his word to us, to honor his covenant to us. You know what's interesting? And you could look this up. You could Google it if you want to. Or you could even ask one of your pastors. The Pharisees had developed 95 reasons or methods in keeping the covenant. They call it case law. Because the constitutional law is the Mosaic law. The case law is the Midrash and the Talmud and all these other stuff. Okay, So they developed 95 case laws so that the Jew could faithfully keep the Sabbath. Isn't it interesting that by the time my friend, that drunken German priest, came along, there were 95 arguments against the church. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is real. God is real. He's he's sovereign. He's over everything. And religion points us all to a place where we are so desperate that we become blind. Second thing I want us to see what religion does to us, is that these people developed rules, and this development of rules came from hearts that were estranged from God, hearts that had become cold and indifferent. Paralyzed by fear, these men had become so legalistic that they failed to recognize this third sign of God's grace on an undeserving people. For them, the fact that this man carried his bed on the Sabbath was sufficient proof that it could not have been God who saved him. It could not have been an angel. It could not have been God. It must have been a demon. Which brings me to my third point. Religion cares more about rituals than relationships. These Jewish authorities must have known this man. After all, he was there for 38 years. Yet as far as they were concerned, this man now stood before them whole and he was, but they only saw him as a lawbreaker. They had no ability to celebrate what the Lord had just done in their presence. The fourth thing I want us to see that religion does to us is that it causes us to become callous toward each other. These Jewish leaders had no compassion for this once helpless and dependent man. They should have recognized what had just happened at the pool. This man received healing by someone present and not an angel. You know, some manuscript says, you know, if you have the King James or the NIV or the New King James, it'll tell you that there was an angel who stirred the pool. And some manuscripts say that. But but they should have recognized it wasn't an angel. It was someone present. They'd gotten so used to the angel of the Lord coming down every now and then, that they failed to recognize that the Lord himself had come. It wasn't an angel of the Lord. It was God himself who had come. They had missed it. Isaiah 58 verse 13 and 14 tells us why God instituted the Sabbath. God gave Israel a Sabbath not to put a burden on them. He says, "If if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take the light in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God says, man, don't see the Sabbath as a problem. See the Sabbath as a blessing from me. And so Jesus later finds the man and says, see, you've been made well, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Jesus, what is this worst thing that could come upon this man? Could it be that Jesus is saying to him and us that the worst thing is for any one of us to not recognize God's goodness in our lives? Since faith in Jesus alone brings us into a right relationship with God, Any attempts on our part to seek God's favor apart from Christ can only result in our total rejection of Christ. This man didn't even know who healed him. Do you know who has brought you thus far? You need to know that it has been Jesus. It has been Christ alone. Third and final point I want us to see in this text is verse 16 and 18. I call this sand castles and temples. Sand ca- you know, uh, Pastor Bill talked about the Bahamas and, you know, it's, it's really some beautiful beaches. It's some of the most beautiful beaches on earth. I won't lie to you. And, you know, as a child, I grew up making sand castles near the beach. And what you do, you go <laughs> as close to the water as possible, but not too close because the water will wash it away. And you you want to get the sand as moist so that you can shape it better. And at times, you know, the waves would overrun them, and and you'd get disappointed as a child. And as I, you know, as you, you know, and oftentimes, you know, you'd have bullies who'd walk the beach, and they'd kick your sandcastles. And that'd make you angry. But this described how the Jewish leaders reacted to Jesus' actions and claim. They were not disappointed in Jesus' They were angry at Jesus. They were in a rage against Jesus. Why? Jesus says, listen to what Jesus says, and I don't want you to miss this in verse 17. My father is working until now, okay? Then he uses the phrase, my father. (gasps) Is working until now. And I am working. (laughs) Ego, Amy. I am working. I am working. We don't get that in English. In Hebrew, Jesus was saying, I am the same one who who met Moses at the burning bush is me. He is working. And I am that one who met Moses and I am working on the Sabbath. Hit pause for a while, my friends. Man, when they heard that, they were like, wait a minute. He's just, he's just a man, and this is the beginning of this long series of arguments between Jesus and the, uh, and the religious elite. At, at one point later on in John 7, they said, look, Jesus, time out. We, we're not bastards like you. We know you. We know, we know about you. We know Joseph was in your father. Our father is Abraham. You don't have a father. You cannot be God. You cannot be the Messiah. They became angry with Jesus. If they, didn't, if they didn't stop this madness... Jesus would lead Israel into a direct confrontation with God, and this would bring about certain judgment, not only from Rome, but from the Lord Himself. We cannot allow this Nazarite to destroy that which we have built up. And that was their sand castle. Jesus had come to build a temple. These men had a, they had built a, a sand castles, as I said earlier. Let's get these rules, let's get these laws, let's get everything in place so that God would be obligated to love us and to give us everything we need. And more importantly, the Holy Spirit would return to the temple. Shekinah glory would come again. But he wouldn't come to their sandcastle. The the final temple was there. The Holy Spirit was there in the final temple. What they didn't realize was that Jesus was the complete fulfillment of all of their hopes. Yet he had become public enemy number one to those who rejected him. John says in chapter 1, he came to his own, verse 11, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. So Jesus comes along. And as far as he's con- their concern, he breaks their Sabbath regulations because he is working. And then he blasphemes. And they say, man, you're making yourself equal with God because we know that only God is allowed to work on the Sabbath. Who is Jesus? He is the one who works on the Sabbath. He is the one who gives rest, who has been working so that you and I may have rest. Not only on the Sabbath, eternal rest. And he was right there. John says in his letter, their hands touched him and and they were able to see God in the flesh. He was the only hope. Jesus doesn't bow to their fears. He's on a mission from the Father. And he confronts these men in a manner that leaves no room for their misunderstanding his claims of being equal with God. His response escalated an already volatile situation and his audience became infuriated. You know what? Jesus is here today, and he forces believers of all ages to rely only on him. And this is crucial to our attempts to please God. Jesus is telling you and me today in the power of his Holy Spirit, you cannot fix your situation. You cannot get out of this except through me. Not only am I the door, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. Only Jesus. It is only Jesus. And he demands an allegiance to him alone which confronts the way you have been doing things. Following Jesus means that you would jeopardize your comfortable relationships with friends, neighbors, and people everywhere. You have to leave your pools of Bethesda. You have to leave that which is familiar and embrace this one who is so radical because he's done it all for you and me. And so he's here today among us in the person of the Holy Spirit, working both to will and to do of, for his own good pleasure, and his pleasure is for our good and the glory of the Father. You know, we are hardly any different from those men in John 5. By now, many of us have already built our own sandcastles. We already have our beliefs, which we could manage. We already have developed our social and cultural practices which divide us from each other. You may be one here today who does not even believe in the God of the Bible. Or you may have, because of abuse and trauma, you may have become uncaring towards your fellow man. The good news today, my friends, is Jesus is God in the flesh. And he has come to reveal God's character. He has come to reveal God's purposes. And he's also come to deliver us from religious bondage. He wants to free us. He wants to bless us. If Jesus is right about who he claims to be, what is his response to your claim? There was a man named Victorinus many, 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 many years ago, at least 1,800 years ago. He says, if all authority has been given to Jesus, then Jesus is subordinate to the Father. But if all authority <laughs> has been given to Jesus, I want you to know Jesus and the Father are one. On the sanctity of life, I want to remind you, that the Lord and giver of life is here in your midst. He wants to take you from a place of despair. As our sister said at the beginning of this service, you may be wrestling with guilt. I don't know what you're dealing with, but he wants to deliver you so that you can walk in the very newness of life. He wants to set you free from bondage, whatever it may look like. And it's a simple yes to Jesus. It's a simple yes to him. May the Lord enable you and me to bow in the presence of the great king, surrendering our lives to him, not knowing what tomorrow may bring, but knowing in whom we believe, knowing that he is able to keep those things that we give to him until that very day when he shall come again for us. Until then, may you trust in him. May you trust in Jesus. In his great name I pray, amen.